you come to the end of the Bible, you actually, so that's right there in the middle. It's big stuff. And then we have Jesus coming on the scene. And you know what Jesus calls himself? The bridegroom. He says, I'm the one that wants to marry you, the church. The first miracle that Jesus ever does, it's not a church, right? It's not in the public square. It's not in the market. It's not in the synagogue. You know where it's at? It's at a wedding. That's a big deal. His first miracle is at a wedding, and it sets the whole tone for his ministry. I am the bridegroom. You are the bride. I'm going to marry you. And we come all the way to Revelation. In the book of Revelation, what do we have? We have a wedding feast. I love wedding feasts. Anybody like wedding feasts? Even better than the wedding, right? Because during the wedding, you have to sit there, and you're smelling the food and the wine, and you're like, there's a party coming. This is really cool, but here comes a party. This is awesome. Oh, look, I'm crying, but there's a party. It's a wedding feast, and we're going to have this wedding feast, and it's our wedding. You and me and Jesus, all of us, all the Christians from Jesus' time to now, all the people that came to faith as Jesus went and rescued them from the depths of hell have come to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Every tribe, nation, color, creed, every thought, every race, all coming together at the throne of the Lamb to be married to Jesus. Big day. Big, big day. I love weddings. And I love wedding feasts. And I've been to a few of them. There's the food. There's the drink. There's the dancing. Well, for most people, it's kind of more like a wobble, right? Let's just be honest. There's like three people that can actually dance, and everybody else just kind of wobbles. One of the things that people are doing nowadays at, at weddings, and Heidi and I actually did this at our wedding 20 years ago this February. Can't even believe it. Forever. Forever. They do these things they called first look photos. You guys seen these online? First, if you go and search, Google search, you know, marriage or wedding first look photos, you're going to get some images. And what they are, it's the time that the groom gets a first look at the bride. You know, she's all dolled up. She's in that gorgeous white dress with the sequins. And then the guy gets to see her. I, put, I, I got some of them. Let me show you one of them. Okay, so here's the first one. So this guy's like, there it is. The first time he's seen her. Look what he does. He's crying. He's crying. How about the next one? Let's see this one. Next one. Here it comes. He has like a three shots. He's like, oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. I can't take it. Now this last one. This is my favorite one of them because you can't, you can't, oh, you can't hardly see it. He's got this single tear running down his cheek. This is, this is wedding stuff, right? This is when you fall in love with somebody and you see them for the first time and you go, that's the woman I'm going to marry. And together we're going to go through life for the rest of our life. It is an emotional, gut-wrenching moment. And this is how God feels about you. Every time you show up to church, I'm serious. Every time you show up to church, every time you come to worship, God is looking at his bride going, oh, she's so gorgeous. She's just so beautiful. You're just so wonderful. And you're thinking in your mind, oh, man, I just, this week has just been a mess. I'm just lucky to be here. And God's going, but you've made it to the altar. You're here. We look at people in the church and we go, oh, my gosh, they're so messed up. The bride of Christ is just, she's a train wreck. This thing is starting to pull it. She is. She's just a hot mess. She's a hot mess of anger. She's a hot mess of addiction. She's a hot mess of dysfunctional relationships. And you come to church and you gather together with the body of Christ and Jesus looks at you and goes, I love you. I love you. But imagine, 
Imagine if you go to a wedding and the groom is standing down front and the music starts. Dun, 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 dun. My little eight-year-old would sing, all fat and wide, not very nice. And the bride comes down the altar like this with her phone and she's texting away and she gets down to the front and like trips on the first stair like oh oh sorry 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 everybody and then the priest says mowage what is mowage no he doesn't say that i love that part but he says dearly beloved we are gathered here today in the sight of god to join together this man and this woman i got some practice at this you know this is pretty good and then he stops and he looks at her and she's still texting <clears throat> just just a minute. We would be shocked, wouldn't we? We would be absolutely dumbfounded. We'd be sitting there, some people would be chuckling, like they did just now. Curtis, I heard you. He's like, whatever, I didn't laugh. It wasn't even funny. We would be mortified. Some people, the mom would be like, why? And the dad's thinking, she can't marry him, she doesn't even love him. You know where this is where, you, we all know where that where marriage is going, right? Where is it going to end? In the courthouse, right? It's going to start at the altar, but it's going to end in the courthouse. And that's really how the Bible describes God's people. Distracted. Uninterested. Not really caring too much. Very, very busy with all sorts of really good things. All sorts of, our families, oh man, our families, our work, our passions, the things that we find exciting in life, the ambition to grow our income, to grow our bank accounts, to have a boat and a house, distracted by all, none of these things are bad, but distracted by all of them. So Paul takes this idea that's written throughout Scripture and he applies it here in 1 Corinthians to the 1 Corinthian church. First, first person to do this theologically, to take it outside of this big context of God and his church to say, hey, wait a minute, if God wants to marry his church and we're all distracted, it's time for a correction. It's time for a correction. So let's look at 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 9 through 20. It's a little bit long, and I'm going to break that up just a little bit. So verse 9 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revelers, nor the swindlers, and I could go on and on, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the Spirit of of our God. The, the key right here, then we haven't got to the marriage part yet, but the key in that section, like, this is one of those places where we, oh, he just, said, he just said the H word. We don't talk about that because we don't want people to feel like they're unloved or unwelcome. We don't, we don't deal with that. We don't talk about people who are in adultery. We don't talk about sexual immorality and what that even means. Paul just kind of goes on and on. He's like, like these are some of the things that go on in the streets of Corinth. These are some of the things that go on in the streets of Pullman. These are some of the things that happen in Viola and in Colton and in Uniontown. These are some of the things that take place up on the WSU campus, but not with you, because you used to be like that. 
That used to be you. You used to be one of these people. But, my favorite word in the whole Bible, but. Just say but. I'm just resisting all the junior high jokes right now. But, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus. Paul's like, hey, guess what? I'm about to vomit on you a bunch of big theological words. We get washed, right? We take showers. It's a thing we do in our culture. We take showers. We take baths at least once a month whether we need to or not, right? You with me? I do it at least every other month, at least whether I need to or not. So he says you were washed, and he kind of pulls up this imagery of baptism, where we go down in the water, and we come up out of the water, and we've been washed. The water has covered our entire bodies. We are waterproof, so it doesn't necessarily get in unless we snort it through our nose. But it washes the outside of our bodies, and it makes us clean. And he says, you were washed in the water by Jesus. Your sins have been washed away. We've taken the dirt off of your body. We've taken the sin from your soul. And then he goes on to say, not only were you washed, but you were sanctified. Now, that's a word that you almost have to be, like, African-American and wear a suit to say, right? You've got to be an African-American gospel choir pastor to say, sanctified. You've got to say it like that. Sanctified means that you were made holy. It's, the idea is that, like, in a lot of the temples of their day, if you came in and you worshipped some other god or did certain things, it would defile or make dirty the sanctuary, it happens today in the Mormon church. I don't know if you know this, but in the Mormon church, if a non-believing person, a non-Mormon person, comes into their sanctuary, it defiles it, and they have to go through this whole process to make it clean. That's called sanctifying it, making it holy, setting it apart. Now, they're talking about buildings, but Paul here is saying, you were washed, and then you were made holy. You were a drunken reveler, liar, cheater, stealer, you were a broken individual that couldn't relate to anybody. You were caught in idolatry. You were caught up in sexual immorality. But you have been made holy. Holy. And then he adds on. Sanctified and justified. Clean, holy, brought into alignment. You know, it's justified when we type on a computer. It's a left justified, right justified, center justified right? Or all. And I don't even know what that's supposed to do because it never changes anything when you press that button. We do this in our, our politics. We right justify and we left justify, don't we? I'm leaning over here with the Republicans. I'm leaning over here with the Democrats. I'm doing my best to stay right here in the middle. I'm a Republicrat. <laughs> that's a thing, I'm telling you. There you go. It's called an independent. We like to pretend we're independent, but when all the independents come together, are we independent? I don't think so. We're all dependent together. Anyway, so you're justified. You're suddenly brought to God's side. You're suddenly brought into alignment with God's word. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. You used to be that way, but now you're like this. Now he's untangling the culture, right? You used to be like that, but now you're not. So he continues, and now he's going to come to this marriage imagery. He says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now this is something that they're saying in the church. Hey, like the law, it's been, it's done. Jesus died, the law's over. He's like, yeah, 
everything's, everything's lawful now. But your relationship with God has changed because of it. Not everything that is lawful for you is good for you. And not everything that is lawful for you will leave you in freedom. In fact, they will dominate you. They will dominate you. And he says this, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy both one and the other. See, this is all, all this stuff, this is heading toward that wedding feast at the end where everything is going to be changed and made new. The body is not meant for sexual immorality. Here's the wedding imagery. But for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? The two should be one flesh. He's going to say that in a minute. My favorite line here. And God raised up, I already read that. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Say one flesh. One flesh. And he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. That's Paul's big point right here. We are married to Jesus. One flesh, one spirit. Therefore, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Now he's switching metaphors and mixing things up. Not only are you married to Jesus, but your body is this place where worship happens, where the Spirit of God resides and lives. It's his house. The Holy Spirit is within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God doesn't just want to save your butt from hell. Just be, that's like about as blunt as I could put it. He's not out to just get your butt out of hell and into heaven. God wants your body. As followers of Jesus, we've become one body, us together, and that body is the bride of Christ. There is a wedding in Revelation, and it's our wedding. We together will be clothed in sparkling white, and there's going to be a huge party, and we become fully one with Jesus. But there's this thing called baggage. You guys know about baggage? Baggage. I like to, like, Andy and I, we had some fabulous premarital counseling. One of the things I say all the time is that the premarital counseling we got saved our marriage before it was in trouble. I mean, literally, if we had not had it, we wouldn't have made it. Our premarital, and that's important. So if you're single, premarital counseling, come talk to Heidi and I. We're like all in. It saved our marriage before we were, were, were married, and it's because we realized during that that we both brought baggage into our marriage. Baggage, you know, a suitcase. And inside that suitcase is all kinds of broken things. It's broken things from how you learned how to relate from your mom and dad. Or if your dad abandoned you, how you expect people to treat you. Or if your mom abused you, how you will relate to your spouse, either in fear or in trust, whether you're going to be enmeshed or you're going to be open, whether you're going to be codependent or not codependent. All of these things come from your family of history. Now, this is deeply biblical. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the book of Genesis. Things pass from generation to generation, and we carry them. And guess what? When you carry those things, you carry them into every relationship. You carry them into your work. You carry them into your leadership at church. In fact, there's not a leader in the church here that does not lead out of their family of origin. 
until they have dealt with it, until Jesus comes in and says, hey, let's take a look at this, they're going to lead right out of it. And in your marriages, married people, you are carrying your baggage into your marriage. Single people, you are carrying your baggage into your dating life. And all of us together are carrying our baggage into our relationship with Jesus. Old man, that makes dealing with our baggage really important. Because you know what happens in a marriage where you don't deal with your baggage? Your baggage gets together, all right? It gets all together and gets all one fleshy. And one fleshy with baggage becomes little backpacks. And those little backpacks, they grow up into roller bags. And roller bags grow up into the full-on, you know, my mom can't travel anywhere without bringing the kitchen sink and all of the silverware, right? You know what I'm talking about? Baggage begets baggage. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. That we are carrying all of this stuff from the before the but, right? Before, but you were washed, sanctified, justified. You're carrying your baggage into your relationship with Jesus. And it is leaking into the church. It is leaking out of your life into the life of the church. It is leaking into your relationship with God. We are literally joining our baggage to the people sitting beside you, and you are joining your baggage to Jesus. Yeah. Sexual sin is a sin against the body. It's not just talking about your body. It's talking about our body. Oh, boy. This makes dealing with our baggage really important, doesn't it? This makes going back in our lives and looking and with Jesus saying, God, have your way in this stuff and to start to get momentum, to start to get free of those patterns of behavior, it makes it deeply important so that we can relate to one another well. So that, just like Jesus said, what is the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. If we can't love our neighbor, we aren't loving God. We can't love God without loving our neighbor. It's a two-way street, and we've got to get to that stuff. I don't know if I, you realize this or not, but everywhere you go, there you are. Heidi and I say this all the time. Everywhere you go, there you are. Sometimes, well, like Heidi loves looking online at new houses. I, like, I get all like, dissatisfied with what I have, so I have disciplined myself not to do this, but she like, just likes to dream. And when she was saying that, you know, we could have a bigger house, we could have, we could have, I don't know, I'm just going to start naming stuff. She doesn't want a swimming pool, but we could have a swimming pool. We could have, and, and, oh, if I had a hot tub, my life would just be so good. My life would be so good. Some of you guys are like, you know what, if I had a different job, my job just makes me so unhappy. If I just had a better job, you know what, if I had another 50 bucks on my paycheck a month, it would just change everything. 50 bucks is all it would be, or 100 bucks. or a th- The thing is, is like no matter how much more you say, it's just a little bit more. If I just had, if, if my wife just dressed a little differently, or if my husband would just do the dishes, I could go on. All the things that were dissatisfied in life, if that thing just changed, I'd be so much happier. But the reality is, wherever you go, there you are. You could move across the country to another place, and guess what? You bring yourself with you, and you bring your baggage. And you're going to bring that baggage into a new place. The only way to break free of that baggage is to go back and to deal with it. Paul wants us to know that it's, there are things that are perfectly normal outside of a marriage with God. And it's in your baggage. It's in how you relate to the world. It's things that are perfectly normal outside of a marriage to Jesus that are just not okay with inside the marriage of Jesus. 
Just like when we date, right? When we're single, single people, you've got this whole list of things that are okay for you to go out and do that it's certainly not okay for me to do, right? It's perfectly okay for you to go out to a restaurant, where, um, we'll use a girl, with another guy, and then to go to another restaurant with a completely different guy the next night, and maybe with a completely different guy the third night. Now, you're just getting a lot of free meals, I think, is what you're out for. But that's perfectly normal, because this is how we find a mate, right? This is how we find our spouse. We find the one that, that just that glows, you know? We get all mushy inside, and they look at us, and they get all doe-eyed. We date until we find that person. We date until we find the person that their values and their dreams and their, their hopes, they all align with us, you know, with what we have. And when we pray together, and we come to this faith together, and, and then we become married, it's perfectly normal to date around. If I was to date around, you guys probably wouldn't want me as your pastor, right? And my wife certainly wouldn't want me for her husband. It's not normal for husbands to date around on their wives inside of a marriage. You're bringing things into the marriage that don't belong there. And that's what Paul is saying, is that when you were not married to Jesus, there are perfectly normal things going on out there. In fact, he's going to correct, make a correction about sexual immorality. And he says, I told you to kick that person out of your church, but I'm not talking about people that aren't Christians. I'm not talking about people. If you were to take and kick every person who was sexually immoral out of your life that wasn't a Christian, you wouldn't have any friends. That's basically what he says. I'm talking about the people in the church. You've got to deal with it in the church. It's not okay for you to bring stuff from outside before you were married to Jesus into your relationship with Jesus, into the church, the body of Christ together. It's not okay. What was perfectly normal behavior before is right out now. In the same way, when we're married to Jesus, we are one flesh with him. And the things that were perfectly acceptable before we were Christians are no longer. But you have been washed but you have been sanctified, but you have been made righteous, justified. The body is not meant for it. That's what he says. You were made for Jesus, and he loves you. So this brings us to Paul's correction. You guys got this image of marriage? What's going on here? He's going to come to this correction, and he's going to deal with two big issues going on in the church in that day. And it really, he could have chosen them right out of our, our day. And he could have chosen any one of 150 ways in which things that were normal outside of our marriage to Jesus have come in. But he's going to deal with these two. But I would take and not just look at what the specific incident is, but what is the bigger picture coming above this? Okay, What is the thing that he's really dealing with? So he's going to deal with two big areas, two incidents. And the first one is really about passion. And it's found in chapter 5, and it's going to be one and following. And I'm not going to read it to you. You can go home and read it. But here's the essence of what's going on. Ready to be shocked? Somebody in the church, a man, men, pay attention, left his wife. Uh, Days, day, and age, we go, okay, that happens. It's not good. When it happens inside the church, it's actually painful for all of us. All of us feel this. So they've got this man and wife in a church. The husband leaves the wife to take a mistress, and the mistress is his mother. Ah. You're like, wait a minute, did I read 1 Corinthians ever? <laughs> I'm, I'm serious, it's in there. You, you look, you go home and check me out on this. 
he takes his mom as a mistress. Now that's, let's all just say together, ooh, gross. Ooh, gross, right? It's not normal. But he goes on. He and his buddies are going out to the local taverns, and they're getting their, I don't know, horns of ale. I don't know what they served ale in, in those days, but you get in there, and they're bragging about it. It's like, hey, did you hear about Tom? Tom left his wife, and he's with his mom now. And they're like, dude, that's so cool. And it's like, what? And, like, and Paul says, you know what? The pagans are even grossed out by this, okay? Pagans are like sacrificing children. Pagans, they'll do, they'll do temple prostitution all day long. They'll do revelry and parties and orgies and all kinds of horrible things. But even them, they're grossed out by this. And they're boasting about it. Ooh. You're like, well, if that was going on in the church, we probably ought to do something, right? Paul's getting at this idea, though, of a person whose passion is out of control, whose passion, physical passion, has run wild. Now, you're going, I don't have a passion for my mom. And I'm saying, good. I'm glad. (laughs) But I bet that if you looked, you would find some other passion in your life. It might be for a nonprofit. It might be for rescuing children out of, out of slavery. It might be your work. It might be uh, your motorcycle. It could be any number of things. It could, could be, you know, making the perfect martini. I don't know. These passions in your life, and they're perfectly good things, but when those passions run wild when they're let go of so that they can just run and do their own thing, that's where we have a problem. See, the Roman way of doing things was that we want to satisfy our passions at all costs. And the more wealthy you were, the more you could allow those passions. In it was a sign of wealth. It was a sign of success. And Paul says, you are carrying that into the church. You are carrying that into your relationship with Jesus. You are joining the body of Christ to a prostitute. Our first passion should be our marriage to Jesus. When we think of marriage, we tend to emphasize things like commitment and loyalty, and those are a big, big part of it. But there's passion, too. I love my wife passionately. I'm learning to love her more passionately. I am learning what it is to express passion in our relationship. And I will tell you that I have not been good at it over the years because it wasn't modeled for me. My baggage taught me to keep those things close, to keep a lot of things close, to keep a lot of things closed. But my first priority in my life, in my marriage, should be to have a passionate, loving, deep, healthy marriage. And our passion, our first priority in life should be our marriage to Jesus and having our passion for him and not for all of these things that we are passionate about. It's fine to have secondary passions, right? But it's when they go rushing out ahead of your marriage to your wife. It's when they go rushing out ahead of your integrity if you're single. It goes rushing out ahead of your faith. God is passionate about you. I want you to listen to some of these scriptures. This is from the book of Zephaniah. He will take great delight in you and rejoice over you with singing. From Zephaniah. 
In the book of Hosea, where I talked about the prostitute and marrying the prostitute, this is how God speaks. The third time she's run away, this is what he says. My heart is changed within me. And you would think, and it's really ticked off. But he says, all of my compassion is aroused. What about the story of the prodigal son in the book of, book of Luke? The son that runs away and gets all dirty, wastes all of his father's goodness and all of his love and comes home, no hair, maggots and his beard. And he's just nasty and he's filthy and he's coming and he's just going to beg to be a servant in his father's house. And what does his dad do? He runs to him. He runs and he embraces him and he kisses him in all of his filth. This is God's passion for you. What passion do you have? Our first passion should be our relationship, our marriage to Jesus. But like many marriages, the passion that we first feel when we meet Jesus often tends to fade over time. At first we can't stop talking about him, but after a while our focus turns to our other passions. We talk about we're going to talk about marriage and singleness in a couple of weeks, and what our marriages and what singleness can look like in the family of Jesus. But I want to say that neither your marriage nor your relationship to Jesus has to be passionless. Can I just encourage you today? If your passion has wavered for God, if you've turned your life to other passions, I mean, most of us are not going to go so extreme as to leave our wives for our mothers, I hope. But whatever the passion is that is run away with your life, can you just today turn back to him? Because that's what relationship is. We, we get distracted, but we turn back. We, our eyes are drawn away, but we turn back. That's repentance in the Bible. It's that turning back, coming back to Jesus. Turn back to Jesus. The second place that Paul's going to address is in this area of lawsuits going on in the church. I'm going to be really quick about this. But Paul says, look, your ambitions have run wild. We have people, two people suing each other in the church, and they are like, they're going at it in the public square. And here's the thing. It comes down to the end of this, this stuff on verse 11. He says, oops, I'm back up, back up. Verse 7. He says, to have lawsuits with one another at all is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brother. I want what I want. And it doesn't matter if I have to lie to get it. And it doesn't matter if I have to tear down my brother to get it. My ambition is to increase my bank account. My ambition is to have a great job. My ambition is to have a higher degree. My ambition is to be the boss of my workplace. My ambition is to look successful, healthy, wealthy, wise. Whatever your ambition is, these people had their ambitions out of whack. Pastors do this all the time. Their ambition is to grow their church. Their ambition is to have a great worship team. Their ambition is to be the best preacher possible. They'll spend hours crafting a sentence. I did that once. You guys didn't even notice. (laughs) That's not in my notes. The best stuff just isn't in my notes, I'm telling you. Like, all the stuff you've written down today probably wasn't in there. Paul says, your first ambition should be your marriage to Jesus. Your first passion should be that marriage, and your first ambition, the thing that you strive for, the thing that you run hard after. 
To put this bluntly, these people were living as though they were not married to Jesus. They're living as though they were single. When you're single, you have all kinds of time, and we're going to talk about this in our marriage and singleness. Singles have all kinds of time to devote to loving others well, to devote to serving God with all of their heart, all of their soul, all their strength. They're not distracted by their spouse, who you have to put time and energy into. You need to date. They don't have children to distract them. And let me tell you, if you don't have kids, they are super distracting little things. Daddy, 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 daddy. Single people can do all of that. These people are living as though they weren't married. They're putting all of their energy into the things that they want rather than their marriage to Jesus. Our ambitions could be work or building a business or making money, titles or degrees, families. But making a marriage to Jesus, our first ambition, means waking up each day and saying, what's important to Jesus today? Not what's important in my work. Not what do I have to do today? Not which apartments do I have to clean or what thing do I need to do in my yard? It's what's important to Jesus. How can I be present to Jesus today? My spouse my spiritual spouse? How can I shift my ambition from work, from my tasks, from my parenting, even my relationships and my family, and how can I shift them in such a way that focuses me on my marriage to Jesus? And this is why we encourage you to take time every day to do what we call the daily office, to take five minutes in your day, not just to do a devotional, but to be silent before God and to say, here I am, Lord, your servant is listening, and to listen to what he wants to do it at morning, to do it at noon, in the middle of your day. You're like, i got to get these reports done. i got to get this paper typed. And then you're like, nope, stop. i got to listen to Jesus. That's who I want to be with. And to carry him into your ambitions. So my question this morning is, where are you most tempted to turn from your marriage to Jesus? Is it in your passions? Or is it in your ambitions? It's often one or the other. And sometimes both. I'm sorry if it's both. It's a lot of work. Are you more tempted to run after your ambitions and to leave Jesus behind and not even invite him into those ambitions? Are you more tempted to run after your passions? I'm going to give us a moment to allow Jesus to speak to us in that silence and to ask the Holy Spirit, where am I in this? Where am I? This is a great way. I'm going to ask you this question. How are you in Jesus? How are you in Jesus? Take one minute of silence to ask ourselves that question. close this morning.
We've got each of you probably has something in your heart because that's the way the Holy Spirit works. And what we're going to do is we're going to close in a very, very, very traditional church way. We're going to pray a prayer of confession. And uh, what I'm going to invite you to do is to sit where you're at. I'm going to ask you to uncross your legs and put your feet firmly planted on the ground. Because this is a reminder to us that while our business right now is with heaven, it's going to change things here on earth. That while our hearts and our minds and our souls are married to Jesus in heaven, he has planted us here for a purpose and in this place and in this time. And as we deal with that relationship, it changes this. And we're going to pray a prayer of confession. And it's an ancient prayer that churches have done for thousands of years. And I'm going to have it up on the screen here. And I will start, I will say, we confess, and then you just join with me from that point forward. And then we'll stand and sing the doxology, all right? All right. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteous. So, we confess to God Almighty that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We are truly sorry, and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, amen. Would you stand with me as we once again turn our hearts to praise? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let me encourage you first before I commission you that there are people in the back that are willing to pray with you this morning. And if the Lord has brought something into your heart and you want to go beyond confessing it corporately to confess it privately and to receive prayer ministry, we'd like to pray with you in the back. Now go in the grace of our Lord and walk in your marriage relationship to him. May your life be a sign and wonder to the whole world about how good our God is. And may his power rest upon you as you go. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.